If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of the magazine, and this is the fourth of our November 2011 podcasts. Don't forget, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and you can subscribe to it. Our website is historyextra.com, follow us on twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com slash historyextra. This week, coming up, we have... I basically, in my book, I'm laying down a challenge and I'm sticking my head on the block and I'm saying, no, it wasn't typhoid fever that killed Prince Albert. That was Helen Rappaport on Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Towards the end of his life, where clearly he's, he's well off, he's starting to get fat, he's able to sort of indulge his clear liking for luxury. And that was Scott McKendrick on what led Edward IV to create his royal library. Right, our first interview. In her recently published book, Helen Rappaport challenges the long-accepted theory that Prince Albert died of typhoid fever. This month, as we approach the 150th anniversary of the Prince Consort's death, BBC History magazine's section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Helen about Albert's death and its impact on Victoria and the monarchy. So, Helen, perhaps you could maybe begin by giving us some of the background to Albert's death in 1861? Um, well, I think the thing most people don't realise is it wasn't Albert suddenly got ill and died, boom, boom. Uh, Albert actually had been a very sick man for many, many years, chronically sick, in fact. And uh, because of Victoria's neurosis about his well-being, uh, he had concealed a lot of it from her. But fundamentally, he had really been in very declining health the last, certainly the last two or three years of his life, although constitutionally Constitutionally, um, he was not a very well man ever. He just had a weak constitution. And of course, that was in the direct opposite of Victoria's extraordinarily vigorous one. And traditionally, people believe that he died of typhoid. Um, but in your book um, and in the feature, you mentioned that perhaps there was another reason for his death. Well, one of the things I really felt very passionately about challenging in the book was this kind of tired old chestnut that typhoid fever from the drains at Windsor had killed Albert. And when I started looking at the evidence and all the different books on Victoria and Albert, I suddenly realised, my God, no one had really examined the details, the circumstances of Albert's death and really looked at what, if any, medical evidence there really was for typhoid. And the more I dug and the more I looked and the more questions I began asking, and I also had the help of some very 
uh, good medical specialists at the John Ratcliffe Hospital, the more I became convinced that it simply was not typhoid fever. So I basically, in my book, I'm laying down a challenge and I'm sticking my head on the block and I'm saying, no, it wasn't typhoid fever that killed Prince Albert. It was an accumulation of his chronic condition exacerbated by um, a bad case of chill, uh, which developed into pneumonia, possibly septicemia. But fundamentally, I think he was a chronically sick man. And that illness, of course, remained undiagnosed because it was long before medical science had even described it or identified it. I, I mean, the two things I really wanted to challenge in the book, for me, the most important things were to challenge this awful, conventional, oh, it was a great love affair, young Victoria kind of gooey, saccharine mm. stuff, because it was a very contrived match. Albert came to in England very insecure, very unhappy, very nervous about what was going, what lay ahead for him. Of course, he loved Victoria. He grew to love her. But I think Albert really, fundamentally, his love for Victoria was as the dutiful, loyal, little Freuchen, you know, the little mm -hmm. Germanic wife who always looked up to him as being this wise mentor. Um, I think really he fundamentally had always been a man's man and preferred the world of men and the intellect. But Victoria, Victoria's passion for Albert was bottomless. It was an obsession. That's why I called the book that. Mm. It was an obsession with Albert alive and equally with Albert dead because she never stopped obsessively commemorating him and memorializing him for the next 40 years until her own death. Mm. So that was really important to me to just get people thinking about the real and much more complex nature of that relationship. And the other thing, of course, as I've said, was to challenge thinking on typhoid fever. And on his death, how did the nation find out that he'd actually died? Well, of course, the Telegraph was in its infancy. So the, the interestingly and very movingly, the way in which the people heard that following Sunday morning, because Albert died at um, 10 to 11, was the sound of bells ringing across the country. The first bell to ring the news, and which was very, very ominous, of course, was St Paul's. A telegraph message was sent to the Mayor of London to ring the great bell of St Paul's. Now, that bell was only ever rung in times of national emergency, death of a monarch. So people immediately knew that something dreadful had happened. But most ordinary people, as the news progressed across the country, heard it when, the, when they heard the bells, the muffled bells ringing as they went to Sunday morning church. And it was an extraordinary... A bewildering time for people because, you know, they didn't have the daily papers because the papers had those that printed on Sunday had already been put to bed the night before. So the news wasn't in the papers. Um, and Albert wasn't a particularly popular prince consort when he was alive. How did this opinion differ when uh, after his death? Well, I think I have to qualify that slightly and say he certainly wasn't very popular until the Great ex Exhibition. And the Great Exhibition of of 1851 did kind of win a lot of popularity and a, a basic grudging commendation from a lot of Albert's critics. Basically, he was never particularly liked as he was seen as this upstart German princeling who'd come to kind of live off the fat of the land. But slowly but surely, during the 1850s, he did earn the respect 
of people in government and people in high office and for, and also scientists and intellectuals because he was a huge patron of many different societies and organizations so gradually the british people were coming round to him but really not so much in his own right but as part of this glorious bourgeois archetype of the domestic royal family mm. as as the sort of part of emilius um he you know he always had an uphill struggle against prejudice and uh, antipathy towards him and uh, he, he suffered by it terribly so i mean when after his death did this did this differ at all oh of course of course immediately he dies i mean it's the traditional responses there's an enormous amount of breast beating and oh my god we didn't value him him enough when he was alive and people like florence nightingale actually said that she said well they'll value him better now he's gone as did the american ambassador in london and of course there was a huge amount of a terribly overblown saccharine hagiography in all the papers saying what a wonderful upstanding perfect noble man he'd been which of course went to the other extreme of lauding him uh, as a plaster saint but of course that's what victoria wanted she wanted him to be idolized as she had idolized him and going on to that what was victoria's reaction to his death oh catastrophic catastrophic i mean she was in denial almost up until the last couple of hours before he died that albert could possibly die and she said the most heartbreaking things she said it was like tearing the flesh from her bones to lose him and of course his death exposed the utter crippling dependency she had on him not just emotionally but in terms of you know doing the job remember she had nine children all those pregnancies albert had for quite some time been doing most of the serious day-to-day -day business of running the monarchy and she was happy to defer to him because she thought always that he was far greater far wiser far more efficient than she herself as a poor little helpless fragile woman but of course she wasn't a poor little helpless fragile <laughs> woman at all far from it <clears throat> no far from it how did albert's death differ from other royals um in the past well first of all um you know the last real major um death that hit the nation as as such a calamity had been Princess Charlotte, of course, who died in childbirth, the heir to George IV, the only legitimate one, had died in childbirth in 1817. Um, Albert's death, though, as such, when it came to the funeral, was conducted entirely in private. So the public weren't allowed to go and pay their last respects to a lying in state. There was no public funeral. There was no great parade of um you know um a great procession through london it was all conducted in private at windsor and of course the thing people don't realize is the queen wasn't even there they packed her off to osborne because victorian convention was very much that women shouldn't be at funerals anyway so the public weren't really allowed a proper chance to say farewell to him and then of course there was a equally private temporary interment in the crypt of st george's chapel windsor and how do you think albert's death affected the monarchy in general well it, it it affected the monarchy in two ways. First of all, immediately Victoria totally retreated from public re 
public view. And one, the one thing Albert had done had had created this popular image of an accessible, domestic, you know, unpretentious royal family that people could see, you know, in public ceremonials and on the streets in their carriage. And all that disappeared overnight because she imposed this crippling purda on herself and and didn't want to be seen out of doors at all so in that sense it was a catastrophe in terms of loss of public ceremonial but also far more critically and this was the thing of course victoria's prime minister and other ministers and her entourage realized very quickly was that the day-to-day running of the monarchy was in disarray and crippled by her inability to get on with um, dealing with all her dispatch boxes. And there was a, a national turning against the monarchy, wasn't there at some point? Oh, yes, because what happens is you get, you know, people are very patient, they're very tolerant, they respect Victoria's grief, which was absolutely, totally uh, crippling. For the f- And the first two years of mourning go by and people think, well, maybe after the first statutory two years, she will come out. And of course, she didn't emerge. And the years go by and still she doesn't emerge. And questions start being asked very rightly in the radical press particularly well here we are paying all this money on the civil list to a queen who isn't doing the job and so the rumblings continue throughout the 1860s by the end of the decade there's open uh, you know there's open criticism of the monarchy and the fact that the queen is as gladstone said invisible invisible to her people and what happened to turn this back around again Well, (laughs) Victoria was extraordinarily lucky because it was luck, a weird, perverse, ironic kind of luck that turned it around for her. And of course, what what it was, was that in uh, November 1871, just coming up to the 10th anniversary of Albert's death, Bertie, Prince of Wales, fell seriously, almost fatally ill, actually with typhoid fever. This was real typhoid fever. And when you see the accounts of his illness, you can see that it just doesn't stack up with Albert that he died of it. Anyway, Bertie was lying at death's door at Sandringham, approaching Christmas 1871. And almost on the same day as Albert, the 14th, he went through the crisis and came out of it and recovered. So that was the first thing because that immediately um, brought out a huge wave of public sympathy for Victoria, for the monarchy, for what she had suffered, you know, this terrible possibility that she might lose her son on the same day. And then, of course, they had a big celebration, a big uh, Thanksgiving service in February the following year at which the Queen finally, you know, greeted her public in a huge procession across London. And then three days later, to cap that, uh, a rather sad, deranged young man tried to take a pot shot at her. So you get, you know, this, in in inverted commas, assassination attempt. Mm. And suddenly it's all turned on its head. (laughs) And Victoria's popular and no one can touch her because... Um, you know, she's she's come so close to death. And, of course, the final, final thing that really sealed it was that, in fact, 17 years after Albert's death, 
on the 14th of December 1878, she lost her second daughter, Alice, Princess Alice of Hesse, who did die on the same day as Albert. And that kind of transcended all criticism after that, you know, to lose her husband and a child on the same day. So it all became very talismanic, you know, the 14th of December. And in a way, too, with them both dying so soon before Christmas, that made Christmas always a very sad time for the royal family, actually. Really quite a mournful time. And what do you think would have happened if those, those occurrences hadn't actually happened in the way they did? Ah, well, the interesting thing is, what would have happened? Well, certainly, by the end of 1861, Sir Charles Dilke in Parliament had openly voiced Republican challenges to the Queen and mm -hmm. saying, effectively, well, if she's not prepared to do the job, then she should abdicate and she should stand down and allow Bertie to become, you know, king. And I think the Republican challenges would definitely have grown and she could not have gone on uh, in this state of obsessive avoidance of her public duties, something would have cracked. Mm. And, you know, we might have had a very, very different history as a country. Whether it would have led to an absolute uprising, I doubt. But I think the Republican challenge would have become much more serious. That was Helen Rappaport on the death of Prince Albert. You can read more about the subject in Helen's feature, published in this month's edition of the magazine. Helen's book, Magnificent Obsession, Victoria, Albert and the Death That Changed the Monarchy, is published by Hutchinson. Now it's time for a short advertisement. Ian Donaldson's new biography, Ben Johnson, A Life, is attracting critical acclaim in the press. Jonathan Bate of the Sunday Telegraph referred to the book as authoritative, lucid and magnificent. Here the author gives a flavour of Ben Johnson's double life, insider to the Tudor court and a life lived on the other side of the law. My name's Ian Donaldson and I've just uh, completed a life of Ben Johnson, uh, a remarkable figure, versatile and writer who was a, a dramatist, a writer of court masks, a poet, uh, a writer on statecraft and religion and English grammar, a real Renaissance polymath. And yet he also had a very different kind of life, uh, a, a life which was uh, uh, at moments a criminal. Uh, he was in and out of prison uh, throughout his life. And the remarkable thing about that is that uh, he went on leading this double life uh, right through his maturity and into his late years. So a big question of the book is this, how did this man manage to lead such a double life? Running with the fox and hunting with the hounds, an insider and an outsider at one and the same time. Ben Johnson, A Life is published by Oxford University Press and available from all good bookshops. Visit www.oup.com forward slash UK forward slash go to forward slash Ben for more information. 
Right, it's my historical trivia moment. Last week I told you about the boy with the battleship and his vegetable artillery. This week it's the Italian artist Antonio Verrio, who was commissioned during the 1680s and 1690s to paint some of the ceilings of the grand Lincolnshire Elizabethan stately home of Burley. While he was there, he had something of a disagreement with the cook and incorporated her as a nude figure into one of his scenes, but with the rather disrespectful addition of an extra four breasts. If anyone would like to email in with further interesting historical facts, I'll gladly read them out here, if they're true, of course, and give you a name-check in return. Email me, podcast at historyextra.com, with any curious historical facts that you know of. Next, I've been talking to Scott McKendrick, Head of History and Classics at the British Library and curator of the latest exhibition there, Royal Manuscripts, The Genius of Illumination. So firstly, what is an illuminated manuscript? Well, an illuminated manuscript is essentially a manuscript or a handwritten book with paint in it. So it has painted pictures, painted decoration, uh, but it also has gold and that's the bit that illuminates the page. So it, it's illuminated in the sense that it um, you have paint which is colourful, but then you have the gold which catches the light and really sort of illuminates all the pages of these books. And that can be very lavish. It could be just a, a few pictures, or it could be that every page is literally glowing. Uh, and one, many of them are as fresh as they were the day they were painted, which is one of the great miracles of them. So these things are works of art as well as literary documents? They are, yes. In fact, I think that's one of the things that we're trying to do with the exhibition, which is to open up to people this it's a bit like a sort of hidden national gallery um, of these, these paintings from periods that aren't covered by, say, somewhere like the National Gallery. We can go back into the early 8th century, um, right through to the, the 16th century. So this is a, it's a very, very rich artistic um, sort of record of, of manuscripts produced in Britain, but also the continental Europe. Can you give me a sense of the chronology we're talking about here then? So what's the earliest manuscript you've got and, and how far you go up to? Well, the earliest manuscript in the show is a early Anglo-Saxon manuscript of the Four Gospels from Northumbria. It dates to the first half of the 8th century. And the latest manuscript, I think, is takes us to... The, after the midpoint of the 16th century manuscript associated with Edward VI. So it's a long chronology uh, overall. And of course, by the time that this latest manuscript is made, printing has been introduced for over 100 years. And yet the manuscript, the handwritten book, is still going. OK. And uh, the other aspect of the title, in what sense are these manuscripts royal? The manuscripts are royal because essentially these are all manuscripts that are associated with the monarchs of England uh, across the centuries. It might be that there were manuscripts given to them, uh, they may be commissioned, or it may be that they're associated in some uh, close way with them. Um, it varies from period to period. Later, The later period tends to be mainly about manuscripts that are made for them. Um, the early period is mainly about manuscripts that in some way they're connected with them, whether that be 
them having them made for some other religious body or whether they are somehow illustrated or some aspect of monarchical life is illustrated in them. So it varies from across the show. And we've tried to, to deal with this thematically in the exhibition. We have six sections and one of them, the longest chronology, is about what we call the Christian monarch. And I think that very well illustrates the different ways in which uh, monarchs, both kings and queens and their family, their extended family, have been responsible for the making of these great works of art. So uh, kings and queens were, were patrons of, of the people who were making these, were they? They, many of them were patrons, it's rather spotty uh, through time, both in terms of what survives and also what has come through to us uh, to the Royal Collection at the British Library. Many of the monarchs collected books, many collected very fine books, or were patrons of fine books, but they were personal collections rather than what we would regard as libraries. Uh, the fact the earliest well, the founder, really, of what we would call the Old Royal Library was Edward IV. So that's very late in the story, is there a formalised, institutionalised, if you like, library as opposed to just a personal collection of books. Um, so it's, it's very different uh, uh, in terms of what we have. OK. So, so let's talk a little bit about how this material has come to you. So, mm -hmm. so it, the, the, the meat of it is from Edward the Edward IV and the library that he created, is that yes, right? Yes, yeah. So it starts, Edward uh, is really the first person for whom uh, we have a defined collection, about 50 books mm. uh, of his survive. And they survive in what we call the old Royal Library. And that is a collection that was given to the British nation in 1757. Mm. Uh, so it's essentially the inherited library up to that point of the English monarchs from Edward IV. So we've got that, if you like, that slice of things that have come being collected by them during that period. And that was that was kept going that was from Edward IV up to what, George II? George II, yeah. yeah. So um, most of the things that were acquired were really three, three main collectors, actually. It was Edward, Henry VIII, and Charles II, curiously, because right. he's often thought of as just the, you know, the Mary Morick and uh, yeah. not very serious. But actually, in terms of what came into the, the Royal Library, a lot of medieval manuscripts and some that were associated, very strongly associated with earlier monarchs, comes in at that point. And similarly, under Henry VIII, you get a lot of earlier manuscripts coming in. And that's why partly we're able to tell the story before Edward IV because these earlier manuscripts, ironically, are coming in, are returning, if you like, to the, the royal fold at a later date. Okay. Let's talk about Edward IV a little, because that, that's, that's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, Edward IV, uh, a Wars of the Roses uh, monarch who spent a lot of his time fighting to keep himself alive and, and, his, and, his, and his dynasty going. Um, what was he doing making a library? Yeah, I mean, he, he's very young when he comes to the... Throne. He's only, what, 19 when he comes to the throne, and obviously he has difficulties, he gets exiled. And I think that that's an important 
uh, and quite formative aspect of his life. I'm not saying that when he was in exile he was thinking about books, but actually where he was he would have seen very fine collections and, if you like, the importance that many of his contemporaries on the continent attributed to these sort of deluxe books. And it's really after his return and towards the end of his life where clearly he's, he's well off, he's starting to get fat, um, he's able to sort of indulge his clear liking for luxury. Mm. And one of those things is these deluxe large volumes uh, that he is having made, not in England, but on the continent and particularly in the artistic uh, workshops in Bruges. Right. And was he, was he having them made over there because they were better at making them over there? Did, have we lost a tradition over here? Do we? Um, well, the, this is a contentious subject, but I think most people would acknowledge that the 15th century isn't one of the great periods of uh, manuscript illumination in England. Right. Whereas it, it certainly was on the continent and in particular in this late phase in uh, the Netherlands, in the southern Netherlands. Um, his sister had married uh, the ruler in the Netherlands, uh, Charles Duke of Burgundy, and so there was, and there was a lot of, um, well, there had been for, for centuries, this strong economic tie, but now there was a very strong dynastic tie, very strong political allegiance, so a lot was drawing Edward to, if you like, this sort of Burgundian magnificence and luxury. And part of what Edward was doing there was also a, uh, a reaction against to the perceived sort of penury and inappropriate um, lack of magnificence that England had suffered under Henry VI. I see. Okay. So Edward was the sort of... Um, Know, well, he got the, the country's finances back in, into the black. Um, he managed to avoid further foreign wars, was paid off by the King of France, got a rich um, ransom, essentially, as a result of that. So he did very well for both himself and the country. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a, a symptom, in a sense, of how much spare cash he had personally and the, the country could indulge in at this period. Right. So, so he created a library, the first, the first library that we're talking right. about. Um, but not in the sense, I think, some, some people may think this isn't a, probably a physical entity, this is a group of books. Right. Possibly still in chests, possibly still, if you like, moving around ah, okay. with him. Right. We don't know. I mean, there may have been something that was slightly more formalised, but that was yet to come. So, so who would have been looking at those books then? Would it have just been for him and his personal use, or would he have demonstrated these books to show, as you were saying, his, his magnificence? Well, they're, they're very big. That's the first thing that you, you observe. It's absolutely first thing, and they're very colourful, and they're really... They're very much lectern books. Right. So they're books to be read from, they're books to be looked at but I don't think we're, we're not talking about public statements here no. this is very much for the small inner circle around Edward and we have records of these types of books being read from at say um, mealtimes or in the evening 
So they're, they're part of, if you like, the, both the, the king's uh, entertainment and edification and also the sort of small inner circle of courtiers. I see. So when we're looking at the, the Edward the Fourth books, the, the, sorry, I'm focusing on Edward the because it's interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the books there, they form quite a large part of the exhibition, don't they, the, from, from his collection? Yes, I mean, we're going to show, um, what is it, about 15 okay. of those books. It's, so it's actually the, the only collection mm. that we were showing as a collection. Okay. Uh, so they do feature quite prominently. So can we be reasonably sure that those books would have been touched by the hands of Edward IV? Um, possibly not, actually. Really? Possibly not, because they, uh, the practice was more to have him um, hear the text. He may, so somebody else would have been... Uh, they would have been responsible for reading it to him and others. Whether he ever touched the page. So these, there's a very different interaction with text. It's more like um, earlier, in the earlier period, monastic readings. So you would get readings in a refectory, readings in a church, um, where essentially one person is the, is the lector and the others are the people who listen and take in. Okay. Um, and the exhibition, uh, it's, it's tied in with this BBC series, The Private Lives of, of Medieval Kings, they're calling that. Um, so give me an idea about what we can learn about the kings and queens associated with these books then. What, how, how can we take anything about the, the personalities of the monarchs? Right. The, one of the, the important things about these books is that, is that they're not just beautiful art objects. They do have the potential to tell you a lot about the period in a very different way from, say, documentary evidence. Um, in, in some cases, they're as close as you, you're going to get to the individual monarch. Some of these books were the personal property. They're much smaller books than Edward's books, and they were literally their prayer book, which they used on a daily basis. So in terms of their sort of religious life, you get very close to what they would have seen day on day, the imagery, the text they would have uttered, and many taken very seriously, despite what you know they may have been like in other terms. Many of them were very conventionally devout. Mm. Um, some of them also, I think, work very proactively that they are intended to shape uh, monarchs. So there's one part of the exhibition is focused on, we call it how to be a king. It's basically about the, the literature and the imagery that accompanies them, which is intended for the education of young princes. So these are books that not just tell you about that period, but they're actually an active participant in the story. So they are actually there and they're intended to form how future rulers are. And furthermore, that once you are a ruler, that you're encouraged to read about these sort of what we'd call role models now. So the people like Hector of Troy or Alexander the Great, um, the good examples of those which were read regularly and were very formative in many cases. Oh, so we can actually envisage medieval kings, princes, sitting down reading or having read to them instruction manuals? Yes. Is that right? Yes, yeah. Fascinating. Um, 
Uh, are there any other ways that we can sort of see into the personal life? Sorry, I interrupt you. Really. Well, I think uh, we know that uh, monarchs, and they continue to be very, you know, they're very sort of multidimensional. They have a whole series of personae. Um, and I think that's something that we try to draw out through the books, that the books are, are addressing maybe the aspect of the king as um, the military leader. So there's a lot of, typically, there's a lot of literature about warfare, how to, how to do it, uh, how people did it in the past. Uh, there's a lot about... Um, other identities such as the, I mean, the king is the the leader of the court and sort of he's the, the person that's in a sense leading taste um, so that what he has is in, in many cases going to be what other people will desire. Um, the literature that they're reading is in French and that's a very important part that will increasingly distinguish the court from, say, the the main bulk of people where English is increasingly the single language, whereas the court is much more bilingual. But all of these these texts, or principally, these texts are continue to be in French. So in a sense they're defining how they define themselves is very much um, reflected in, in these texts which become, I suppose, more and more remote from the mainstream becomes more and more distilled, perhaps, as time goes on. Okay. Um, and in the exhibition you're focusing, it's, it's just the English kings that, that we're looking at, the English Well, yes king. and no. Yes and no. I mean, we, the, 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 the principal focus is on them, but in order to tell the story, we have to um, say a lot about the kings of France, and mm. uh, not least because, obviously, the English kings were the kings of France at various points. So there's a lot of reference to that. The The last section of the exhibition, uh, we variously call it England and the continent, but it's essentially about England and France. And an important aspect of the Royal uh, Library, the development of the Royal Library, was that at one point um, John Duke of Bedford, uh, the younger son of the King of England, acquired en bloc the entire French Royal Library. And this wasn't, this became more than just a, if you like, an acquisition. This was as much a, a statement about um, taking over everything that was part of the French monarchy. So just as you had the crown or just as you were, you owned the, the palaces, so you had the library and all of that inheritance, all the sort of cultural property, the knowledge that it encompassed, they took and it ended up in London. Okay. And a large a number of those manuscripts we can still see in, in the Royal Library at the British Library. So that's the English looking east. Yes. That They also had relations with the countries west and north. Did the Scots, the Irish and the Welsh not have Royal Libraries? Well, they almost certainly did, but I think they had uh, the misfortune to continue to have these personal libraries, and there never was established at an earlier, an early date, an early enough date, a sort of formalised single royal library. Not in the same way that Edward, Henry the Seventh, and Henry the Eighth formed. So. 
largely speaking, those collections have just evaporated, or a few, you know, there, there are very few vestiges of the, the Royal Libraries of, of Scotland. It's a great, very sad fact. Mm, okay. Um, last question. Uh, if I asked you to, to pick a favourite manuscript, what, what would we be talking about? Well, one of my favourites is, is a huge volume, uh, a very important volume, much discussed volume, which is essentially a, a marriage gift to Margaret of Anjou, the concert of Henry VI. So this is a book made just before the marriage in 1445. It's a collection of 16 texts, most of which are focused on medieval romances, chansons de geste, or instructional texts, and they end up with a copy of the Statutes of the Order of the Garter. So it's quite a, an interesting miscellany, and it starts with uh, two magnificent, huge, double-page uh, illuminated openings. And the first of which is a representation of the presentation of this huge volume, literally you can actually see the volume in the picture, being given to Margaret of Anjou from the Earl of Shrewsbury, John Talbot, who was one of the great English warriors uh, in France. And there are verses underneath which explain why the, he's giving this book, and some of it is somewhat unbelievable that uh, basically this is to stop her from forgetting her French when she comes to English, which is very unlikely since all and companions are going to be speaking French. And then opposite it, so there's this sort of very harmonious French, Anglo-French picture, and then, but this clash opposite it, which is a sort of absolutely flagrant propagandist statement, which is that Henry VI is the um, legitimate king, not only of England, but of France. So we've got this uh, astonishing juxtaposition, and these are illuminated images. Aren't yeah, they're they? huge. I mean, it just—it's just this contrast, and it talks about sort of peace and harmony on, on the left-hand side, and then, bang, there it is, uh, opposite this, and it and it, um, it's it's a perfect diagram, but like most perfect diagrams, uh, is only perfect because of certain imperfections which have been airbrushed out, and the most important of those is that um, it airbrushes out uh, Charles VII. Of France. <laughs> Very nice. What, what did Margaret Anjou think about that? Did, do we know if she <laughs> received it with good grace? Um, we don't really know. I mean, she was... Pro well, I mean, it's a great present. It, she must have been impressed by its uh, luxury. Um, it had some great stories in it. Um, it would have been a type of literature that was very familiar to her. Her father was one of the great bibliophiles, uh, René of Anjou, uh, one of the great continental bibliophiles. So it's a sort of appropriate present in that sense. Once she's got past this rather difficult uh, statement about uh, English kings of France. That was Scott McKendrick of the British Library. The exhibition, Royal Manuscripts, The Genius of Illumination, is open now and runs until March next year. Advanced booking is recommended and there is an entry fee. You can review a slideshow of images of some of the manuscripts on show on our website, historyextra.com forward slash illumination. 
That's all for this week's podcast. Next time round, we'll be escaping from the Tower of London and looking at the power of Christianity in the First World War. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by the charming Dave Gibson. 